Let's then ask a blessing from the Lord on the reading and the preaching of his word. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, by your Spirit's presence and power now, illuminate our hearts and our minds. Speak a word to us that is sweet and powerful, that penetrates the very hardness of our hearts, the darkness of our lives, and the dimness of our minds, and therein inspires us, inflames us, and enables us to see the glory of your name. Bless the one who speaks the word, bless those who hear it, and together may we glorify your name, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to, Gal- sorry, to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, where we'll read the verses 15 through 23, that hymn which the Apostle offers to Jesus Christ for his glory and greatness and for what it is that he accomplished and for what Pete Paul was made a minister. And then we'll turn to Lord's Day 5 in the Heidelberg Catechism and together recite the answers to those questions relating to the plan of salvation. We're beginning that deliverance section of the Catechism where we speak about how God has saved us from our sins. But first we'll read from Colossians 1. It's page 1,168. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. Here we're speaking, of course, of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in, all, for in him, rather, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." As for the reading of God's holy word, there's something of that, of the reconciling, redeeming work of Jesus Christ before us in Lord's Day 5, page 205, 206 in your forms and prayers. Because we're going to recite the answers together. I'll ask the questions. There are four of them, and I invite you to join in reciting these answers. Lord's Day 5, which is again the first Lord's Day in this section on deliverance, a section that will take us all the way into Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 32, of course, is the first in the gratitude section. So Lord's Day 5 to Lord's Day 31, the largest portion of the catechism dealing with the gospel, with God's grace. And according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied 
And therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who also true God. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we come now to the joyous good news of the gospel in the catechism, having finished the sin section, that part that removes any hope from us in ourselves, that humbles us to the lowest, that difficult portion of the catechism that we don't like to reflect on or think about too long or too often. Now we get to talk about better things. We get to talk about God's grace in Jesus Christ. But even here, we need to be careful Uh, that we might hear the good news as it's presented, not as we might want it to be. We have, as human beings, a desire to hear good news. That's what makes the gospel so encouraging to us. But more often than not, we want to hear a good news that is slightly different, that is not quite the same as what God has proclaimed. Just consider society at large. Consider how many different religions there are. Consider how many different historic religions there have been. All of them have good news in them. All of them have some solution to the problem of life. No religion denies that life has a flaw, a brokenness, a pain about it that is grievous to us, that is burdensome, that there is something relating to the divine, relating to some aspect of the creative power of this world, There is some flaw that needs to be addressed. They all identify the flaw differently and also, therefore, the solution differently. But they all have a solution. They all have some good news, some promise of salvation, some thing you can do or say or accomplish. And as long as you do, you'll get saved. And that's true not only broadly speaking within the religions of our world, that's even true within the context of the Christian church. Not everyone in the Christian church believes what we've just confessed in the, Lord's, in the fifth Lord's Day. That is, that they do not all believe that this is the necessary prerequisite for the coming of Jesus. Many in the church have reinterpreted the gospel, particularly in our current climate, in a more social way. Really, the the issue with the gospel, certainly in the early church and the New Testament church, had to do more with the fact that Jews and Gentiles couldn't get along, that there was this tension, and that when we talk about what Jesus came to do, He came to show us a better way. He came to show us a more sacrificial way, a way of love, 
a way of giving yourself to others. And the gospel is reinterpreted, not away from love. We believe, of course, the gospel is the glorious declaration of love, but away from the justice of God. The love of God is disconnected. It is separated from His justice and His demands for retribution, for justice to be fulfilled. And so even in the Christian church, there are many who will say, it's really up to you. You need to be a better person. You need to be kinder. You need to be more active socially. You need to be more tolerant. You need to be more welcoming. On and on it goes that the way of salvation, the good news of the gospel is that you can be a better person. And there is, of course, a great deal that we ought to take from that, that is, we should be better. We should display the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives that we live, undoubtedly and unquestioningly. But we should never disconnect the call to righteous service from the grace of God in Jesus Christ that deliver us from the righteous judgment of God. We should always see that our service to the Lord is one of gratitude, a worship and thanksgiving born out of hearts that are amazed that God should do what He did. And there is no greater worship we can offer than that which responds to the realization of what we studied, what we confessed just now in Lord's Day 5. Which Lord's Day begins, first of all, with the realization that God's justice must be satisfied. This is one of the points at which even in the history of the Christian church and Certainly right now there is a great deal of disagreement because it is our instinct as human beings to deny this problem or at least to deny it in our relationship with God. We don't like to, we don't like to dwell on the question of God's justice. We do not like to dwell on the problem of God's wrath. We don't mind admitting there is a problem. We don't mind admitting we're sinners. We can hardly not admit that after Lord's Days 3 and, or 2, 3, and 4. But the truth is we wish to deny that it is the justice of God that must be satisfied. We would rather say that it's just God's goodness, God's love that we need. What, what, how do we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Well, God just wipes it away. God just says, don't worry about it. God just says, you know what, I accept everybody. The catechism says God requires that His justice be satisfied. The catechism says that we must deal with the question of God's just judgment against us. Now we don't always think in those terms and understandably so. We don't always think in these terms because life is busy and life is hard. The concerns of tomorrow will quickly dominate our vision, our thinking, our activity. The problems of our relationships, the problems at work, the problems maybe of our health, they so press upon us and capture our mind and our energy that we really have only time to think of those things that most affect us. The greatest problems in life can sometimes be that laundry pile, it can sometimes be that Coworker, it can sometimes just be our own circumstance of life. 
And because those are the problems that are so close to us, those are the problems we think God should solve. Those are the problems we need faith for. This is why, by the way, so many in the world believe that Christianity is a crutch, precisely because we look at these problems and we see, Lord, give me help to overcome them. And the world says, what do you mean gave you help to overcome Just overcome them. Just be a man and be strong. And so often we give the impression that the reason we go to church, the reason we pray, the reason we do devotions is because God's going to solve all of our problems. He's going to solve that laundry problem. He's going to solve that co-worker problem. He's going to solve that marriage problem. He's going to solve those things that make our lives, at least in our estimation, the biggest problem. But there comes a point in our existence, in our development, in our maturity as Christians where we must recognize, even as just human beings, there comes a moment where we understand that none of that is true, that the greatest problem in life is not those things that hinder us. And the greatest solution in life is not those things that make life a little more enjoyable. I mean, that's a little bit like traveling first class on a train That's hurling towards a collapsed bridge, guaranteeing that this train will plunge into this valley and everyone on it will die. As you sit in first class, the food and the drinks might be nice, the seats might be comfortable, and the company might be delightful. But who cares? Who cares that every creature comfort's been given to you? You're about to die a horrific death. And in that moment, when the captain comes on the speaker system and says, we have a problem, folks, the bridge is out and we can't stop in time. And you don't sit there in first class and continue to enjoy the creature comforts you. Use all your energy to find a solution to this problem. Maybe you get up and you run to the back of the train. You try to find some way to escape this outcome. Because you know that the one problem in your life is the horrific end, not the comfort you're enjoying in this moment. And for those who know the comfort of the gospel, this is the great news that lets us sleep contentedly each and every night. To know that our future is secure and in the hands of the sovereign God, to hear the promises of baptism again, which were made to Mava, but are made to all of us who've been baptized in our time, is to know true peace. Yet the truth is we need sometimes to wrestle with this truth. That is, we need to remind ourselves of why, how, why it is such a precious truth. We're so busy as people. We're so busy and sometimes busy with living sinfully and selfishly and rebelliously. And we can just skate over these glorious truths that the catechism provides for us and think to ourselves, oh yes, that's, that's right, I get to go to heaven and now I can go about this week living selfishly again because my future is secure. But before we jump to such a simplistic, maybe Sunday school answer, don't get me wrong, Sunday school answers are good for children, let us at least take some time to think about what this means when the catechism says God requires that His justice Be satisfied. God is, after all, a God of justice. And justice simply means that we are to give what is owed to those who are owed it. Punishment is owed to the wicked. Protection is owed to the righteous. 
That is what God demands in His Word. Think of passages like Exodus 23, verse 7, or Nahum 1, verse 3. Think of Romans 2, the verses 1 through 11. God is a God of justice. And what that means, therefore, is that while we may not think sin is a big deal, it is fundamentally an assault on God and on His majesty. Sin, which refuses to obey God, says to God, you are not who you say you are. I don't believe your revelation. I don't believe your glory as it's revealed in all of creation. I don't think you're you. And then sin, which also acts contrary to God's will, says to God, you are a cruel, wicked, and despicable ruler and narrow-minded bigot and you do not deserve to be worshipped in this world. You do not deserve my life to be lived for you. And sin which harms others says to God, I don't need to be kind to anyone. I don't need to bless those around me. I don't need to love my neighbor as myself. Who are they to me? Those image bearers of yours, those children of yours, they're your, you take care of them, not me. Sin is to say to God, no, in the most profound way. And what is owed then, what should be given to anyone who shakes their fist in the face of God and says, I reject you. I reject your will. I reject your word. I reject your glory. What does our desire to see God destroyed deserve? God requires that His justice be satisfied, and therefore the claims of His justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Sin cannot be swept away. Sin cannot simply be overlooked. I mean, imagine in our day a a judge telling some heinous criminal, ah, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. You go free. I'm feeling good today. You go free. Would you want to live in a society where judges do that? Would you want to live in a culture where they say to those who do the most despicable things, that do the most heinous acts of grievous nature, sinful, wicked deeds, ah, it's okay. You let him go. He, had a bad, he didn't have breakfast. He was hangry. Why do we think that God should let such people go? Why do we think that God should excuse sin? The answer is because it's our sin we want God to excuse. We don't think our sin's that big a deal. But God does. And the debt of our sin must be paid. That in the end is the only way back into God's favor. Unless and until God's wrath against you is fully satisfied, you're like someone sitting in first class headed for death. Your life really doesn't matter because your end is upon you. So how do, we, how do we get this debt then paid? How much do we owe? Identifying the problem, or the solution to this problem rather, allows us to find a way forward. If paying the debt of sin is required, then how much do we have to pay? How long will it take, it to take us to pay it off? And how much good works do we need to do? in order to get back into God's good graces. That's, after all, what this is about, right? It's about doing enough good to overcome the bad that we do. There is in this second question of the Lord's Day, question answer 13, 
Can we make this payment ourselves? There is something of human pride displayed in these words and of our failure to truly understand just how deep into sin we are. Human pride, you know, whispers into our hearts that we can do what is necessary to make God happy. I mean, just think of the history or the witness of church history. Think of men like Martin Luther who believed he could make God happy by doing endless deeds of righteousness. Think about why the canons of Dort were written. Think about the Arminians who were teaching that you can do it, you can save yourself. Just go back to the days of the Pharisees. Go back to the days of Jesus and the apostles and see how they believed they could do it on their own. Or just take any world religion. Take any religion other than Christianity. And you will discover that at its heart, it's works righteous. At its heart, it's you must do in order to get. Even atheism, even the woke progressivism, even the liberalism of our day. Do and you will be blessed. Accomplish and you will be happy. Instinctively, without trying, we all assume that we can achieve happiness apart from God. And the proof of this, even if you think that that's not true of you, is often found in those moments when you don't get what you think you deserve. When your partner treats you poorly, when an illness stalks your footsteps, when your business seems to fail, when anything in this life goes wrong on a serious level, what is then our response in these moments except why do I deserve this? I mean, I go to church. I'm not wicked. I'm not a careless sinner. Look around, Lord. There are these people that are so terrible. I try to live my life right. I try to do good things. I do my prayers and give in the offering. And how come I can't catch a break? And even if it's not in moments like that, then it's in our judgmental attitude towards others. It's when we see people faltering and failing and we, instead of going to help them and to lift them up, point our finger and wag it at them. Our self-righteousness and are saying to those who are struggling, well, if you could just do it a little bit better, if you could be more like me. Our attitude towards others, our self-righteousness, and our expectation that others just need to try harder demonstrates that really at the end of the day, we are all works righteous. And even if it's not in moments like those, it is in our diminishing view of the Christian life our passionless piety, our believing that a few words we say or a few ideas that we confess, that our Christianity can be diminished and diminished and diminished. Our Lord's Day can be diminished, diminished, diminished. Our walk with the Lord can be diminished, diminished, diminished. Our giving to Christian causes gets smaller and smaller. Why? Why is it that we are not on fire for the Lord? Why are we not passionately serving to praise God? Why do members of the church resist the call of the elders to greater surrender to Christ? Why do we say in response to the demand that we do better, what's the big deal? I'm going to heaven anyway. At the end of the day, it's because we don't really understand the gospel. I'm saved because I've done enough to get saved. Which means I don't really have to do anything more. I don't need greater devotion to God. Getting high? That's okay. I'm going to heaven. Sleeping around with my girlfriend? No big deal. 
I said a few words in church once, so I get to go to heaven. Our passionless piety demonstrates the arrogance of this question in question and answer 13 so frequently. And equally significant in this is our failure to know the true depths of our own sin. To think that somehow or another we got a handle on it. I can quit any time. We tend to diminish the problem of sin to the problem of this life. So that sin is what makes me unhappy or prevents me from succeeding or makes my life difficult. So long as I don't do too many really bad things, then I'm good to go. The Catechism brings us to the Word of God and it says, no, 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 you don't understand just how much, of tr- how much the trouble is that you're in. Because the Catechism reminds us, actually, we increase our debt every day. The problem with our pride is that it doesn't correspond to reality. Our debt of sin is not paid off by our pious acts of spirituality because even in our spirituality we fall far short of the glory of God. Even our best deeds, says the Word of God, are stained with sin. I mean, listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the law of God. Listen to the commands of Christ that you love God and love each other with a perfect love. Do you dare claim that there's even a moment in your life when you have lived up to that standard perfectly? I mean, think of it this way. Imagine going to the bank to get a mortgage and when it comes to make your first payment, you go back to the bank and say, you know what? Yeah, I spent my check this week. I don't have any money to pay my mortgage payment. I'd like to borrow in order to make that first payment. Well, the bank's going to say no. The bank's going to say you can't get out of debt by going into debt. That doesn't get you any nearer to solving your problem. Indeed, that's the same in our relationship with God. If we think that our worship and our work, our witnessing and our walk is somehow paying off our debt with God, and we have gravely misunderstood just what we're supposed to do for the Lord, And what his standard of righteousness is for all who call him their God. Now this is human nature, I understand. Human nature overvalues our good works and undervalues our failures. Human nature believes that we can get out of debt by doing good works. But God's justice does not agree God's justice demands satisfaction and we cannot and do not provide satisfaction for that justice in any way because we are constantly adding to our debt. We're making the situation worse, not better. Well, you say maybe there's then a loophole. Maybe there's a way to pay the debt without paying the debt. That's question and answer 14. The question is, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? Well, that can sometimes seem a bit of a confusing question, and confusing for a couple of reasons. After all, God does receive another creature as full payment for our debt. That creature, of course, is Jesus Christ. And even if we exclude that, we think about the Old Testament, and we think about all those times when a bull, a lamb, a goat, some creature was to be brought before the Lord for sacrifice. Why were they not acceptable? Or were they? God seems to think they were. Or were these pointless exercises in empty spirituality? 
Well, in the case of the animals, which is what the catechism is getting at when it uses the word creature, it's not talking about another human. Indeed, it uses the word human, doesn't it, to make that point. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature of what a human is guilty of. It's not a question of another person. Can another person pay off the debt? Yes, another person can pay off the debt. Can another creature, another animal, another non-human pay off the debt? And the catechism, echoing the word of God, says absolutely not. The Bible makes clear that the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse the righteous from their sins. And that this was never anything the Lord taught to his people. The Lord was never saying to his people, a bull or a goat, a sheep or a turtle dove was enough to pay for your sins. Indeed, the argument of Hebrews 10 is based on the repetitiveness of the sacrifice saying, clearly these things didn't work because you had to repeatedly offer them. After all, if you've paid off a debt, you don't need to pay it off again. But the fact that there had to be continual sacrifices day after day, year after year in Israel was a testimony that those sacrifices were insufficient to the task. The poverty of the Old Testament sacrifices is exposed in their endless repetition. So no, says the catechism, no, says the scripture rather, the sacrifices of another creature are insufficient to satisfy God. Don't bring your bulls and goats to church. They're not enough. Humanity committed the sin. Humanity must pay for the sin. It's simple justice. You cannot let your dog go to jail for a crime you commit. You must go. Yet it is not jail, is it? It's the eternal wrath of having offended the majesty of the living God that is at issue here. It is a judgment so heavy, a burden so great, that none of us could hope to pay for it in a an eternity of lifetimes. Here is the real burden of our sinfulness and the reason we resist it so persistently because God's justice demands a payment none of us can offer, yet one that must be paid if we're ever to enjoy life with Him. God says you, you must pay for your sin. But you and I cannot pay for our sin. And so it seems hopeless, leaving us without any strength, without any possible deliverance. It seems to leave us, leave us rather in the pit of sin to which we have dug ourselves. And we don't like being in that position. We don't like being helpless and hopeless. That's why so much of our piety is built around avoiding this reality. And yet the wonder, indeed the glory of the gospel, is that into this hopeless and helpless moment, in this situation that leaves the sinner without any possible deliverance comes the good news of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? It asks one who is true, righteous, is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also true God. Now we know who that is. We know His name. The name that is offered to us in Lord's Day 6. Question answer 18. It's the first time Jesus' name is used in the catechism after Lord's Day 1. Who is this mediator? It asks true God and at the same time true and righteous man. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We know His name. And sometimes we run a little too quickly to that answer. And we ought to do better 
in terms of what the catechism does. The catechism holds off in giving us that answer because it wants us to feel a bit of the weight of this moment. It wants us to stop and think, do you realize what it would take to save you? It's so easy for us, so cheap for us to pay, to say to God, in Jesus' name, forgive me. It's so easy. But think of it. You have to pay for the full weight of all your sin. And you cannot pay it. You have to drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, but you cannot drink it. There is no hope in you. There is no salvation to which you can cling in yourselves. And you owe all of the guilt. You owe all of the responsibility for the misery you're in. You can't blame anybody else. It's your choice. And as you sit there for a moment contemplating just how miserable your life has become, in comes this word of hope from the Lord that there is one true and righteous man, if there were one true and righteous man who is also true God. That is, if God were to come in the flesh and in perfect righteousness obey the Father and die upon a cross, rising again on the third day, only then, only then, could you hope to be saved. And yet we know His name. We know what He's done. We know the names of His disciples. We know the names of His parents. We know the names of His brothers. That's how ordinary, that's how common, that's how obvious Jesus is to us. But we need for a moment to stop and marvel, worship, wonder, The only hope I have is if God does not count equality with God something to be grasped, but makes Himself a little lower than the angels and takes on the form of a servant and suffers His death. No God. What God would do that? Find a religion that has a God like that. Find a person in this world that would do that. For For a righteous man, no one would die. For a good man, maybe, but not for a righteous man. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, He gave His Son to die on the cross. Do you understand the enormity of God's love for you? Do you realize in this moment just how gracious and good? Do you understand the depths of His commitment to you? You are hopeless and helpless. He could leave you in your sin and there would be no guilt on His part. There would be no flaw in Him. He could justifiably say, you chose it, you pay it, it's your business. And instead he says, I'll do it. I'll come and pay for you so that you might be saved. I will suffer the only hope of your salvation so that you might be free. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's the remarkable thing of the good news of the grace that we confess in Jesus Christ. And that's what we too often miss. That's what we too often fail to understand. Just how deep is the love of God. Just how great is the grace of Jesus Christ. Just how amazing is His love. He is the God who comes despite all expectations. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. This is what God has done for those who love Him. He has given us His Son. That we might know His grace and goodness. That we might live each day in the praise of His name. And so let us answer this. Let us respond to this in the only way possible let us give our lives as living sacrifices of praise let us worship him and let us go into this week 
not pathetic, lukewarm in our piety, but amazed that God should so love the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever should believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank You that You gave us Your Son. It's beyond us to imagine why we wouldn't have done it. We don't do it. We don't love people the way that You've loved us. We know we should, but we so struggle, Lord, with that kind of sacrificial service. We're better at judgmentalism. We're better at self-righteousness. We are not better at gratitude and grace. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, in the light of what Jesus Christ has done, give our, to give ourselves more fully to You. And help us, O Heavenly God and Father, to never take for granted this grace, never to treat it as a cheap thing, but to marvel at the love of Your Son, our Savior. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Then our song of response is...